All right, so Acts chapter 15, we're going to be near the end of it, and then we're going to move until we end up in Acts chapter 16 at the beginning of that. We'll get rolling. Uh, so looking at this text, it's a little odd. Uh, sometimes when you're preaching, you can, you can see just a general theme within the text, and it's easy to know this is, this is kind of the theme. This is the point of this text. Um, and then other times it's uh, passages like this, where it feels a little bit like uh, you know, asking a kindergartner about their day when they get home, and there's just this, uh, you, know, <clears throat> you know, what happened when you were gone today. And, um, <clears throat> and so you get this, you know, we did this, and then this happened, and, and then we did that, and is it time for a snack yet? Uh, oh, and Mikey said he's going to ride a dinosaur to school tomorrow. And, and so you've kind of got this just a bunch of stories coming together all at once, um, and, and that's a little bit of what we see in this text. There's these four short stories. None of them are, have an incredibly amount of text to them. They're, they're fairly quick. Uh, and the author, Luke, as he's writing this, you know, he's not as ADD as, as maybe a kindergarten. Nur? Is that how you pronounce kindergarten? Um, but he's telling us these stories about this moment in, in history, one after another. And so we're going to take them one at a time. There's four of them. And so we're going to start with Acts 15, verse 36. Uh, and we'll read that, and then we'll just jump into it, okay? We'll pray, and then we'll jump into it. So Acts 15, verse 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought it best not to take the, take the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, and Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, uh, strengthening the churches. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have numbered our days, every single one of them. Even before you formed us in our mother's womb, you had determined our days. You have told us, and, and we have observed that our lives are like a vapor, so fragile. And yet, in a sense, God, you have made us invincible, untouchable, until it is your will for our lives to end. But God, we come here this morning to worship you while we still have breath in our lungs. And we come here to listen to your word. We we come this day for nourishment together at your table and to rest in your grace. We, we come for the renewing of our faith. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So the situation here is that it's been many years since the very first missionary journey. And sometimes that gets a confusing because it's just a few verses down the page. But it's been a while. Uh, and there was the, the council in Jerusalem. Uh, and now they're, they're wondering what's going on back in these places where they went before and preached the word and many people came to faith. Uh, because it wasn't. It was very hard for communication to get back and forth in this area. Uh, we can send texts and letters and emails in so many other ways. Um, back then, you'd, you'd take a letter and you'd hand it to someone and be like, you know, walk that way for many weeks and hand it to this guy. Uh, and, and so even if you could send a letter to someone, there was a chance it never got there. The fact that you'd hear anything back was fairly rare. Uh, and so they had no idea, really, how it was going. They'd seen these, these new believers come to faith and really had no idea how it was going. Uh, and they were also going to want to deliver this news from the, the Jerusalem, Jerusalem Council, right, uh, that circumcision was not required. 
Uh, and so Paul's plan is, you know, let's get the band back together, get the same group, and we'll go out there and, and just see how it's going. And so he talks to his traveling companion, uh, Barnabas. Uh, they're close friends. They have traveled together, like I said. Uh, they've been through near-death experiences together. They've ministered the word, and they've watched God bring many people to faith together. Uh, and they've recently just been in Jerusalem, where they fought for, the, for just the, the essence of the gospel together. Paul and Barnabas. They're like Batman and Robin, or... Um, maybe a less cool duo, something like Bert and Ernie, um, or Zeus and Hermes, right? No, not Zeus and Hermes. Uh, <clears throat> but the point is, these are partners in the ministry, uh, up to this point at least. And, and now Barnabas wants to take John Mark with him, uh, to bring him along with him. Do you remember who John Mark is? Um, when Peter was, was rescued from prison all the way back in chapter 12, you remember he gets out and the angel just abandoned him, and he's like, where do I go? And he goes to this woman Mary's house. Well, that particular Mary is actually John Mark's mother. That's the home he goes to. Um, and like many people in this time, John Mark had two names. John was his Hebrew name, and Mark was his, his Gentile, or his Jewish name. Uh, and, and so John Mark was on the original journey. He goes with them. Uh, he's with Paul and Barnabas. And remember, they first go to the island of Cyprus. Uh, and then in Acts 13, 13, uh, when they leave the island of Cyprus, they're going to the, north, the mainland up north. Uh, and he just leaves them and goes back to Jerusalem. There's no explanation why. Uh, we saw that before in chapter 13, but we don't know why he does that. And, and now it doesn't take much for us to imagine kind of the situation there. Um, you know, he was probably really excited to go on this missionary journey the first time. And he goes and he's, you know, gung-ho motivated, excited, and maybe he got homesick, or, or maybe uh, he was just afraid, or maybe the whole thing just kind of lost interest to him. And, and so he heads back there, and, and now they've come back, and Paul and Barnabas tell these stories about what an amazing trip is, and you can think, you know, boy, I should have stayed on that trip. Boy, I might have experienced these things. I want to go on that. And he's, he's excited again uh, to go see what God might do on another trip. Um, <clears throat> but Paul doesn't want to take him on this trip. Paul describes John Mark in chapter, verse 38. You see that he says, one who had withdrawn from them. Okay, that's, let me translate that. He bailed on us. Uh, that's kind of how he sees this. He, you know, John Mark bailed on us. And Barnabas disagrees. Barnabas insists, let's bring John Mark with us. Paul certainly feels abandoned and is just not willing to trust him at this point. But Barnabas is very different. He's very quick to believe that John Mark is going to be faithful and dependable this time. So just, I mean, you've read this, you see this. Out of curiosity, uh, just shake your head yes or no, do you, do you believe Barnabas is right in this? That they should bring him with them? All right. What about the rest of you? Do you believe Paul is right in this, that they shouldn't have brought him with them? Okay. There's a variety of answers. Um, this is me picking your brain. Just kidding. Um, it tells you something about kind of the way we view this, right? Uh, these are two different men. They have two very different personalities. They respond to the situation very different. Barnabas, we know he's, the, he's known as the son of encouragement. You know, that kind of nickname comes with a certain personality. Uh, he's one of the first ones to take a risk on Paul. Remember, he, he gets converted. Everyone's like, Paul will just kill us. Let's stay away from him. Uh, but Barnabas is like, yeah, let's trust him. It should go fine. Um, and it does go fine. Barnabas is right in that situation. And he's, so he's quick to trust John Mark again. Um, but Paul just views him again as undependable. You know, we've, we've given him a great chance before, and he abandoned us. Kind of this mentality of, you know, fool me, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. He is really slow to trust him this time. 
And I, and I point that out because I wonder, do you, do you see yourself in either of those two different types? Are you quick to trust someone again? Uh, or when someone's kind of abandoned you, are you slow to, to really trust them again? Do you see this and think, wow, Paul was just too harsh? Or do you think, Barnabas, you fool, you were way too soft, you're going to get burned again? Um, and here's the deal. Here's what's really interesting is we don't hear the details of the reasoning. You know, Barnabas might be in, influenced by the fact that, that John Mark is actually his cousin. That's one of those little details that actually makes some significance. You know, you can almost imagine his mom or his aunt being like, you, you got to take Marky. He's your cousin. You know, and, and Barnabas being like, Mom, okay, okay. You know, just don't talk to Paul. Uh, and, and so I guess that it raises the, the last question. You know, do, we, do we relate to Mark in this? And I ask that question. I know every time you come to a text, you can't just ask who do you relate to. But uh, I, I think it's a fair assessment here. You know, has your lack of follow through made it difficult for people to depend on you? Uh, you know, I've, I've learned over the years that one of the marks of just Christian maturity is this, this simple consistency and dependability. You say you'll do something and, and you do it and people begin to trust you because of that. Uh, you know, particularly, speaking to you there in college age, you know, uh, I cannot encourage you enough right now to develop consistency and dependability, particularly right now where you are. Uh, the thing is, that alone will set you apart from many people in your own generation. Uh, I'm talking the kind of thing where you get job promotions just because, well, he showed up. And we needed that, you know. Uh, simple consistency that you can be dependent upon in that regard. Um, Okay, so back, back looking at this text, so let's see what happens here. Because um, Luke doesn't tell us who's right, does he? It's almost frustrating when you go through this. Like, can you just tell us who's right, and then we can, you know, condemn the other one and feel good about ourselves. Uh, but he doesn't do that. He doesn't give us any reason to believe that one was right and the other one was wrong. Uh, and that's because this is not a black and white situation. The gospel's not at stake in this. Um, it, it was a, a personality dispute. Uh, maybe one of a different vision was going on. And, and, and we see at the end, you know, they're not enemies. Is it in a church plant, or split? Um, they found that they needed to minister apart from each other. And there's no condemnation in the text for doing so. The dispute ends and, uh, and, and with this kind of, you know, we'll agree to disagree and we'll go our own ways. And, and likely you've ministered with people or worked alongside people uh, who are fine people, but you just find it difficult to get along with them. I think in, in those situations, anything like hatred or, or bitterness or true disunity where you're rooting against them or something, uh, that would certainly not be an option for you as a believer. Uh, but there are you know, opportunities or situations where maybe it's just best not to work so closely together when possible. Uh, there are ministers in our, our presbytery who I pray for, who I, I wish to see their churches you know, in the ministry flourish, to see people come to faith, and I really mean that. But I wouldn't willingly be on the same staff with them because I know we wouldn't get along. Uh, and I imagine most of us probably can find people in our lives that would fall into that category. Uh, it's not so much about right or wrong, so much as just different opinions, different personalities. Uh, one of the things we see here at the end is that Paul doesn't harbor any bitterness towards John Mark. It sounds like it here, doesn't it? But in fact, near the end of Paul's life, uh, while he's writing 2 Timothy, it's a letter to uh, Timothy, who we'll meet in a moment, uh, Paul says, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. And so they still have this connection. They're going to be ministering together 10 years down the road. We don't know how the reconciliation happened, if they spoke to each other or uh, what happened, but we do know that they're, they're still relating and well, well many years later. 
Uh, so in the, in the end, God uses this dispute, um, even this dispute, for his good. I think this is an important thing for you to understand, you know. Uh, just as we learn in Romans 8, 28, uh, which tells us we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Uh, and even here it works, because what happens? The church sends out two different teams, and they go separate ways, and they minister to new believers in two different regions. Uh, Barnabas and, and, and John Mark, they travel the sea, they go back to Cyprus, that's where John Mark was before, uh, and, and Paul takes Silas with him, and they go by land, and they go north, and they go west to a totally different area. Once we leave this part, we never see anything else. We don't hear anything else about Barnabas' missionary journey. Uh, we'll find out. That's because Luke is actually traveling with the other party. Uh, and, uh, but we do know that he continues to minister for many years. Um, so you might know John Mark by his other name, which is just Mark. He authors the Gospel of Mark. Uh, if you were to turn back a few chapters, a few books in your Bible, you'd find that book. Um, so this section then ends by, by telling us that they were strengthening the churches, and, and that was the motivation to begin with when Paul set out. Uh, so it's a wonderful thing to think, even in this dispute, God uses it for his glory, and the churches are encouraged and strengthened in the way they hoped. Okay, uh, so we'll move on to the next, the next section here, beginning of chapter 16. Uh, this is, you know, if this was this Macedonian life or something, Ira Glass might be like, Act 2, some cheesy story, right? Um, if you don't watch American Life, it doesn't make any sense to you. Uh, so anyway, uh, as Acts chapter 16 begins, Paul is returning to the town where he had previously been stoned, throwing stones out, and left outside to die. And so you can imagine, uh, it's not a real comfortable thing walking back into this environment, and yet here he comes many years later. Um, and, and you wonder, like, after all these years that have happened, is he seeing people that have come to faith who maybe were part of that? You know, like, I remember you. You were throwing rocks at me last time, uh, and now we're worshiping together. Um, we don't know that for sure, though. So let's just read Acts 16, verse 1. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered them for, for, to them for ob, uh, observance the decisions that had been reached at the, by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. So this is the first time we learn about Timothy. There's two books that bear his name in the New Testament. Um, and I love that he's identified here at the beginning. You notice that? They just say he's a disciple. I love some of these descriptions of people early on. You know, everyone, anyone ever introduce you as this is, you know, you're a disciple. Um, Hi, this is Katie. She is a disciple and also a student. You know, something like that. Uh, uh, we, we learn then about this, uh, that Christians in this town speak very well of Timothy. We learn that he's the son of a Jewish woman who's a believer. And it says, but his father was a Greek. Anytime you see a phrase like that, but his father was a Greek, there's some significance uh, to that. The reason it's there is just to explain that he's being raised as a Gentile, and that's why he has not already been circumcised, despite the fact that his mother is a Jew. Uh, so then we read in verse 3, um, you know, you kind of wondered if I, if I read that wrong, right? You're reading through this, especially after the, the Jerusalem Council last week. 
Paul wanted to bring Timothy with him, so he had him circumcised? That sounds crazy, doesn't it? Seriously, Paul? Paul, you, you literally not get the memo? The memo that you helped like construct just recently? Um, the memo that said, do not burden Gentiles with, with circumcision? And so this requires us to make a little sense out of this. Uh, verse 3 actually gives us the reason for it. It says, as the Jews in the, areas, in the area, uh, they were knowing, they knew that Timothy's father was a Greek. That means that they all knew. It was just common you know, information that he was not circumcised. This was information they apparently shared back then. Um, I don't know if we can get our heads around this. You know, what, a, what a huge cultural point of inclusion within this community uh, circumcision was within the Jewish community. We, just, we, could, we have nothing quite like it. Uh, and, and so, see, these local Jews would have known that, that Timothy, they would have viewed him as Timothy is in violation of the Abrahamic covenant, which put him on the kind of the outside. Um, they weren't going to listen to him. There was going to be a dispute uh, there. And, and so having him circumcised here is not about meeting an actual requirement for salvation. It's just not. It, it's about removing a stumbling block when engaging these Jewish believers in, in this region. That's what it's about. He, he wants uh, to move this point of contention, to get it out of the way. And, and so, uh, especially because they're going to be delivering this, this decree or this statement from the Jerusalem Council that is telling Gentile believers that it's not required, and so this is going to become a side issue if they don't deal with it. And so, uh, they don't want to cause this stir. They want the focus on the gospel, not on Timothy. And it takes wisdom. Okay? It takes wisdom for us to know when we should just do something little because it makes it easier to get to the point and when we should stand our ground because the gospel's at stake. Um, trying to think of a few modern examples. One of them might be uh, taking your hat off to pray. right? And Some of you are thinking, that's not a modern example. You have to do that. Uh, there is no scriptural requirement to do that. <clears throat> but I usually do. And I do it just because I know that with older people, with southern people, a lot of army people, uh, it's an expected thing. It's about respect. It carries a lot of big view of how you do this. And so, um, I mean, I understand if it's a Yankee hat, you take that thing off for sure. <laughs> but so, so really, though, you have this, you know, uh, uh, can I pray with a hat on? Yes. Yes, there is nothing in Scripture that, you know, forbids me from doing that. But, but for the sake of not making it an issue, I, I just remove my hat. Um, I noticed John doing that, the prayer thing yesterday. I assume it's the same reason. I don't know. I'll ask you later. Uh, another example of that would be uh, the exclusive singing of, of psalms without instruments. Uh, there's a great RP church in town, and, and they practice that. And we've talked about doing a, a joint worship service with them, and if we did, we'd most likely just sing psalms uh, without instruments for the sake of their conscience, not because we agree with those convictions, but so that we could worship with them. And you see... Uh, what Paul is dealing with here is this, this issue of this, this weaker brother mentality, you know, getting caught up in this issue that becomes just a stumbling block to what they're doing there, which is wanting to encourage the churches to build up the gospel. Uh, and so he's actually putting into practice what he's going to write down in 1 Corinthians 9, uh, verses 20 and 22. There he says, To the Jews I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those outside of the law, 
I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside of the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all peoples, that by all means I might save some. Um, I can give you one more example. I can remember being in in kind of central Mexico, inland, uh, on a mission trip, and and one of the things they were insistent about was that the, the girls with us had to wear pants. Um, that didn't sound right. They had to wear pants instead of shorts. Uh, they could not wear shorts. That's the way I need to say that. Uh, it was important to them that the girls with us not wear shorts. Uh, is there freedom in Christ for them to wear shorts? Yes, certainly there is. But for the sake of the people that we were ministering to, uh, all week long, in the heat, we wore pants. Um, not we, everyone. Uh, men wore pants too, in case you're wondering. So <clears throat> Timothy here is, is circumcised. Um, it gets done. Uh, and he will be Paul's traveling companion for many years. That's this father and son-like relationship is the way Paul refers to it later. And we, we see that the story ends then with the churches being strengthened in the faith. Uh, and they were growing numerically. Uh, you can imagine uh, what a relief and joy it was for the Gentiles in this re- region. Uh, As Paul comes in and he starts to share, you know, there's not this requirement of being circumcised, that it's only faith in Christ and and redemption. That's the strengthening of these churches. All right. Uh, So let's move to story number three. We see the work of the Holy Spirit here. We see the work of the Holy Spirit in determining the location of their ministry. Uh, So follow along, verse 16, Acts 16, verse 6. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging them and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately... We sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So the first thing to mention here is when we see that phrase, the Spirit of Jesus, that's just another way of saying the Holy Spirit. Uh, verse 6 then tells us they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word of God in Asia. There's no explanation in the text of what this looks like. Uh, it could have been a vision like we see in the second part of this story. Uh, It could have been simply just some sense, you know, we're not supposed to go there. It could have been some material thing, like a road was washed away or um, somehow blocked for for some reason. In fact, it it could be simply their assessment as they look back and realize something came up and we couldn't go there. And and I, I mean this because, or I say this because, you know, how many times in your own life have you tried to do something and it didn't work out and maybe you were incredibly disappointed at the moment? Um, only to look back and to think, you know what, God prevented me from that. Um, and then I ended up doing something else, and I am thankful for that. I can, sit, I can look back and say, God was at work in that moment, uh, only from, from a looking back perspective. Uh, I can remember even after graduating from seminary, uh, Laura and I wanted to be in Houston. We wanted to be where our family was there, and I interviewed at a few churches. None of them incredibly great situations, but um, wanted the position just to be in Houston. Uh, None of them worked out. I can remember just being incredibly disappointed by that. Um, And and now we can look back and, and, you know, have this sense of like, okay, you know, the Holy Spirit prevented us from ministering in Houston. 
And, and you look back and you say, well, why would God do that, right? Well, how else does anyone ever end up in Kansas? <laughs> Travis hates those kind of jokes because he's from Kansas. But, but really, like, like, we love it here so much um, that we have zero desire to go back to Texas. And, and yet, back then, we would have never, ever, ever sought out Kansas. It just was not on our radar. Um, literally wasn't on our map. And so, uh, in, in verse 9, then Paul really, you know, shares this, this vision that he has. And this is one of those things that can weird us out sometimes, you know. Uh, a vision, like a dream. There's a man, and, and he's not identified. We know nothing about the man, so I won't even try to come up with an answer for that. Uh, but he asked him, you know, come over to Macedonia and, and help us. Now, Macedonia is further than they ever went on the first trip. So this is, this is new territory. This is a place the gospel has not made it to yet. Uh, it was way far away. It was across the Aegean Sea. Uh, we're talking modern-day Greece and Bulgaria and Serbia kind of region. Uh, and so they respond to this vision by traveling there. And, and, and then, um, by the preaching of the word, uh, we're going to see that many come to faith. We're going to see churches getting started and planted there and established. Uh, this is the region that includes Philippi and Thessalonica, two cities' names you don't care about, uh, except for you realize in your Bible are two books, Philippians and Thessalonians. Those were written to the churches that will get established on this trip. Um, and the other interesting thing in this little section here is, is this change of pronoun in verse 10. You probably didn't notice it, right? Um, I didn't notice it. I had to have it pointed out to me. Uh, for the first time, though, it doesn't say Paul or they did something. It says we sought to go on to Macedonia. That the first person plural here tells us that Luke has finally joined this party, right? He's traveling with them at this point. It suddenly changes, and that will continue through the rest of it. Um, it's also why we, we hear about this story, but we don't hear about what happened with Barnabas and, and John Mark. Um, so there's no explanation how he ended up with them. He doesn't write that part of the story down, uh, but now he's part of it. And so you've got Paul and, and Timothy and, uh, and Silas and Luke and probably others. Uh, which now brings us to the last story for today. Uh, chapter 16, starting in verse 11. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city in the district of Macedonia, in a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down, and we spoke to the, the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia, from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So consider just the simplicity of this evangelism. They arrive in Philippi, strangers, right? Uh, and they learn there is no synagogue. And there is no synagogue uh, because you couldn't have a synagogue unless you had ten Jewish men to establish it. That was uh, the, you know, the Jewish policy. However, Jewish policy did allow you to set up just a, a place of prayer. Uh, each Sabbath, provided it was outdoors, and, uh, and so that's what they've done here. And so I uh, imagine they've asked around, you know, there's no synagogue. Well, is there anyone here? And, and eventually they learn there is a place of prayer, and it does exist, and it's just outside the city by the river, and they go out there. 
Uh, and Paul and the others, they sit and they just begin to speak to these women. Uh, at this point, the focus really is on Lydia. Um, Lydia is a, a businesswoman. She would have done incredibly well in, in Manhattan since she was a seller of purple goods. Um, this, this would have been her wheelhouse here. Uh, it sounds a little weird to be a seller of just you know, purple stuff, and, and that's because like, colors are so readily available to us. We can make anything bright. Um, but back then, purple dye was actually a very rare commodity. Uh, the only way you'd get it is you'd find these, these snails. Usually they were sea snails, and you'd, you'd somehow crush them and get this purple dye, and, and you'd dye it. And it was very valuable uh, because it's one of the colors. Most colors would fade very quickly back then, uh, but purple dye would actually tend to get brighter as it was out in the sun. And, and so that's what she does. She sells purple things. That's why in your bulletin it says Varney before Varney's, which was supposed to be changed, but it got stuck in there. Um, Anyway, her husband is not mentioned in this, which tells you either she is single or she is a widow. Uh, we don't know which one it is. And we also know that she is very likely a very significant woman, socially and business speaking. Uh, she maintains a house that is big enough that she sees this group of men and is like, come stay with me for a while at the end of this, right? Uh, and the fact that it uses that phrase household, that probably includes servants and others. And so uh, she has probably been very successful at business. Uh, what I love is that right from the beginning, she is referred to or identified as a worshiper of God. And it's kind of like Timothy with the disciple. I love hearing these descriptions. You know, people always have some identifier. Um, you know, he's the guy with the really big beard. Or uh, she's the girl that always wears cat sweaters or something like that. And you, you think about this and it makes you wonder, you know, what is my identifier? Um, I don't know. I assumed it was an incredibly handsome man, but I don't know that. Um, and so in our passage then, we, you know, we saw Timothy identified as a disciple, and we're seeing Lydia identified as a seller of purple and a worshiper of God. Glorious describers. Uh, it sounds as though that she's a Gentile proselyte, uh, and, and that's someone who's interested in, in, in Judaism. Derek Thomas actually uh, describes this as someone who has sensed and the monotheism and ethical standards of Judaism, something that reflects her own longings and aspirations for identity and meaning and longing for God. And so then we, we see again in, in her, her, or her conversion here, we see the sovereignty of God and the way that he brings her to faith. You see there in verse 14, which reads, The Lord opened her heart to pay attention. Opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul was talking about. And if we know anything about Paul, we know that he was saying, you need Jesus. And, it, and it's not just that she was paying attention in the sense that she hears him, uh, but she really cared about what he says. Really understanding the gospel became of, of great importance to her. Uh, and, and really, this is just an ordinary way to come to faith. And, and so she hears the word of God. And God grants her faith to believe. And, and since Lydia is coming to faith as a first-generation Christian and thus into the community of God, she is baptized because she is now in Christ. Um, that's why. Uh, but there's others baptized here, right? And that kind of weirds us out a little bit, right? You see that in the, the second clause of verse 15? And her household as well. Um, we as a church believe and practice in, in infant baptism or what we call covenant baptism to distinguish it from what you'll see in, in Roman Catholicism and other, other denominations. Um, I see this here, and I don't think that the household baptism that you see in this text is going to convince you at all that children of believers should be baptized. 
I, I just don't. Uh, but I do believe it will help you understand why we practice covenantal baptism. See, the, the reason that her whole household here gets baptized is that it models or it mimics, it kind of parallels what was co- the covenantal practice of, of circumcision in the Old Testament. Uh, in Genesis 17, we see that the, the male servants and the, the male children received the sign of the covenant, that was circumcision, no matter what their age. Um, and it was not dependent upon their own uh, profession of faith of any sort. It says, uh, one of my seminary professors, a guy named Sinclair Ferguson, referred to as the principle of family solidarity. Because Lydia was converted, the household follows her into the covenant community, and so they receive that sign. It, it doesn't mean that everyone in her household uh, has faith in Christ. It means that they are now in the visible community of God's people. Uh, And and so they will be under the means of grace, uh, prayed for and discipled by the word of God. Because water baptism does not guarantee genuine faith any more than circumcision guaranteed genuine faith in the promises of God before. Okay? And I just point that out so you can kind of see that. I know that's not a, a convincing argument in and of itself, but you understand that connection to the Old Testament, um, the Old Covenant, sign of the, of the covenant. Uh, so now, this, this passage then ends with, with Lydia inviting them to stay with her. And she is brilliant. You can understand why she's such a good businesswoman. Uh, you see how she words this? If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So if I decline your invite... Uh, we're saying that you're not faithful, guess we're in. Uh, And they do. They go and they stay with her. Uh, So let's bring it all to an end, uh, this passage, the entire, all four of them. Uh, In America, we constantly hear that the church needs to change or it will die. Or at least blog posts and newspaper articles are constantly pushing that idea. And, and that fear for many years now ha- has driven us to all sorts of innovations or new attractions, new ways to you know, spice up the church somehow. And sometimes it feels a little bit like we're walking into one of those hundred-year-old houses and you start to see the various changes that all the owners have made over the years. You know, the, the mustard yellow linoleum that's been laid over the kitchen tile. That was real. Uh, or, or the avocado green shag carpet that's just been nailed to the hardwood floors, or uh, you know the popcorn ceilings that still haunt us from some faraway era that made sense to them or something. Uh, and, and so you walk into these places today, and, and you just ask, why? Why did you do this to this house? Uh, and, and the only answer is that it was trendy. You know, this is what people wanted at the moment. That's why. And if you live in one of those older houses, at this point, you're just trying to figure out how do we get back to the way it was? Uh, how do we get back to the way this house was built originally? And, and, and so I mentioned uh, before that the, that the church in America has, has, has acted very similarly. We, we follow these trends. We've installed so many trendy fads on top of the simple gospel in the hopes that it will attract people to church. And by church, we just mean the building. Well, what we've seen in these passages today is that Um, what the church needs is not new innovations. Because the goal isn't just to attract people into a building, it's to point them to the Savior. And and so we need to get back to the the simple means that only God can grant us. And and, and by that I mean this, what we see here, we need need God to open doors for us, right? To open doors for the opportunity to speak the gospel, just like he opened doors in Macedonia. 
for them to speak the gospel, just like he opened the doors to speak the gospel to Lydia there at that prayer meeting. And in many ways, God has, has been answering that prayer. God has opened doors. The fact that we can have you know, Christian campus groups at K-State, they can freely go around and talk about Jesus, that's an open door, praise God. Or the fact that we have freedom to invite anyone you want to come worship with you without any consequence legally, that's an open door, praise God. Um, and then the other part of this is that we need, we need God to open hearts. Okay? That's why there's no trend, no fad that, that we can do. We need God to open hearts. Um, just like he did in our passage with Lydia, when he opened her heart to pay attention to the gospel. And if, those, if we need those two things, um, and we do, we need those for the church to flourish, we, we must be asking God for those things. That must be our prayer. And I, I mean that generally as a church, as we, we just pray for God to open doors in the, in the city and at Fort Riley and on the campus of K-State and Junction City and Wamego and Riley and wherever else God has us. Um, we need that. And, and so, brothers and, and sisters, let us also be praying in more specific ways, ways that aren't so general, you know, asking God to, to open hearts, to listen and to hear the gospel and to believe the gospel of, of people we actually know. You know, praying for, for real people, those in the social circles that God has placed us into. Um, and I'll even, I'll even add, if, if needed, you might even need to pray asking God to open your own heart to believe the gospel. Oh, that the Lord might grant us those two things, open doors and open hearts. Let's pray. God, in these four stories, uh, we see you working. We see you working through human disputes. We see you working through the discipleship of young Timothy. We see you working through the gospel being taken to new lands and to new people. We see you working through simple conversation with, with Lydia and, and with her whole household coming into this covenant community where they will hear the gospel if they don't already believe it. And we ask that you would open our eyes to, to see you working in Manhattan, Kansas. And to see you working in our homes and in our hearts and all for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.